Surfing. I'm your host, Lenny Burnham, and this month we're going to be talking about the Amazon original series Rings of Power, based on Lord of the Rings and its appendices uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, so expect spoilers for all of season one of Rings of Power, as well as any Lord of the Rings media. Uh, and my guest this episode is Kev Kozer from, I should have checked up, I should have made sure I knew the name of your podcast before this. I want to say it's are you talking Trek to me? <laughs> no, I think that's too much infringement on Scott Ackerman. Uh, it's just okay, talking, what's Trek it called? To you. talking Trek talking to you. Talking Trek to you. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you for being here. Of course. Yeah. I I mean, I guess I sort of... Well, my Lord of the Rings journey is interesting, but I'm very excited to be talking about it. Let me just put it that way. And whenever I'm ready to get in that history, I am ready. Yeah, that's actually pretty much the first thing I always do at the t- the top of the podcast. Um, yeah, I have basically no history with mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings other than like the obvious of those being like the most popular movies of all time that mm-hmm. I heard about and all the other all the other kids at middle school were obsessed with. So mm-hmm. I like I know stuff about it from that. Um, but yeah, tell, tell me all about your background before going into Rings of Power. Yeah, I mean, so my parents are huge Lord of the Rings nerds, okay. and they have not just the main book, not just the Silmarillion, the companion book, and of course the Hobbit, but also like all of these like extra stuff J.R.R. Tolkien's son put out after he died that were like behind the scenes, like appendices and cliff notes and such for his works and the unpublished stuff and all of that. They knew all that front to back. Uh, they read The Hobbit to me as a kid. I loved that. I loved the animated Hobbit movie as a kid. So I was very familiar. Yeah, very familiar with The Hobbit from a young age. They would try to read Lord of the Rings to me, and it wouldn't take. It's a very dry book, as I <laughs> yeah. into a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, and they, I was not really too young for the movies, but they sheltered me from the movies anyways. I think I was a big scary cat, so I'm not, I don't like put blame oh, okay. on them for doing that. I might have been like, <laughs> too freaked out by like the cave troll or whatever in the first one. But I did come to them as more high school or late mm-hmm. 2000s, early teens, um, and even college. And, but yeah, I love those movies. I've watched them front to back several times over. Um, and it was only this year though, that I was like, I'm going to read in this order, the Silmarillion, mm-hmm. because I know the movies so well. I, Instead of just reading what I already know, I'm going to read the Silmarillion, the companion book, which is basically like a textbook Tolkien write and didn't publish in his lifetime about the sort of prehistory of everything mm. in the world, which is, I, I loved it. <laughs> but it's a very difficult, interesting read that's not like many of the, it's more like reading the Bible than it is reading an actual right. book. So does that, yeah. uh, the stuff in that, is that like even before Rings of Power? Right. So the chronology okay. of Lord of the Rings, it's three ages, very conveniently. First age is Silmarillion. Second age is Rings of Power is covering the end of that. And Lord of the Rings is covering the end of the third age. Okay. So that's where the dividing lines are. Um, and it's basically like, you can think of it as like the first age is like the gods versus Sauron's boss. And then he dies. The second mm-hmm. age is people versus Sauron in a physical form third age is the lord of the rings that's yeah mm-hmm. that's the sort of dividing points of when each age begins and ends um 
Yeah, and I read Lord of the Rings itself for the first time in the run-up to Rings of Power. And I actually think, I think I did read the final chapter on the day of the season finale, coincidentally. Oh, wow. Yeah, but like starting a few months before because I'm a very slow reader. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, uh, then it's great. I, I think I did it in the right order, if I don't, uh, not to just overpraise myself, but I really did think, like, running with the Silmarillion let me walk with Lord of the Rings. And I was like braced for some of the drier, more descriptive parts that I found really beautiful, but are sort of the harder parts to get through. And then also just like all like the dialogue, the characters, the action is just so well put to the page. Tolkien's a fantastic writer. I, I now love him. I totally get it. Um, but to get to what's relevant to the show, uh, yesterday I finally read, I took a break because Lord of the Rings is such a big thing. I was going to save the appendices for Rainy Day. That Rainy Day was yesterday where I read that and read the page and a half that relates to the events of Power that is in this entire nice. thing. Yeah, this is, I think, um, totally unique from any show that I've done before on the podcast or really like any show I can think of where like most people are coming in with knowledge from movies, really. Mm -hmm. Um like, obviously, people read the books and they're popular, but most oh, yeah. of the discussion I heard comparing things was all based around the Peter Jackson movies. Yeah, I, I'm curious what percent of people who know Lord of the Rings have actually read the books. Because, like, they're not easy reads. Like, even the main books are, like, there's just so much, like, <laughs> this a talking tree. Oh, well, you know, the Ents, but there's, like, a whole chapter that's really just them, like, describing what it's like to live as an Ent and what the world is like and what nature and like nature poetry. And it's like one of the best chapters in the book. If you have the right <laughs> mindset, I think it's going to be a big overall discussion of this show also is like, well, if you're into that kind of thing, it's great, but right. I definitely see why it's less accessible to people. Yeah. It's, uh, there's definitely like a silliness to it in like a very specific way where like, mm -hmm. uh, even though I watch a lot of shows I would call silly, there's definitely like a specific thing where I'll be like, oh, this is silly watching Rings of Power. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it, this like franchise is interesting. It's interesting to see people try and make this kind of thing with a Tolkien thing, because um, mm -hmm. I feel like so much of these sorts of franchise shows are based around um, like explanations. You know, people want to see, uh why things are the way they are in these backstories and it's like it's weird to make that kind of explanation heavy show with a world where it's like well the tree is running out of light so we have to make these rings to solve it you know right and i think with rings of power the explanation stuff is the worst parts but almost it's just credit the parts the showrunners are least interested in kind <laughs> of a double-edged sword way where it means that like if like trying to watch the show through like a conventional TV lens of incident and story happening, like that's the most boring stuff and the most <laughs> glossed over stuff. Whereas what they get so right is the, what also works really well in Lord of the Rings books and movies is just the, and it's so hard to describe, but I'm going to try my best, the feeling of it. Like right, yeah. the character emotions, the sort of being in touch with the world itself, the history they understand that it's more about living in the world than it is about directly what incidents happen. It's just, I think, both 
being a especially a streaming show with like only an eight episode order like that's very different like the tv shows you think of where you're living in the world those are like the 22 episode sitcoms or Mm -hmm. even like 13 episode dramas like the sopranos those aren't like these how we do a lot of modern television especially prequel like the idea of a prequel is usually more about explaining things than is about things happening which is why prequels rarely work right yeah i almost felt like i uh like i enjoyed it more as someone who really doesn't like care about token at all but Mm -hmm. like likes tv um because i could be just be like oh these are you know the characters and i like watching them whereas like when i watched some of these like uh like today you know i was watching some like youtubers just to refresh myself on the show and there's so much of um the nerd perspective of being like oh like like there was literally one i saw that was uh talking about a harfoot scene that was like there's not really any story here but it does establish nori wants to you know get away and explore the world which i'm like that's obviously the story that's like the main character and what she's interested in yeah i i think this is the show it's like Best equipped for people with either no knowledge or all the knowledge. Yeah. Like, and I, I don't want to claim I have all the knowledge, but like, I've re- I've crossed that line on the other end, and I feel like a lot of people I know who are super into Tolkien also like the show for the same reason. Where it's like, I feel like once you like are fully aware of that sort of world and what you're trying to get out of it, it's like you're just there for the vibes almost. If you know nothing, like you're not trying to focus on the story, just there for the vibes. But if you're no, it's almost like if you know enough rope to hang yourself, to use that (laughs) dark metaphor, it's like, (laughs) then you're like, well, why aren't they getting to building the rings? Uh, It's (laughs) the fireworks factory of the show basically is the forging of the rings. And it's like, why aren't they going to this point that I know they're going to get to? Why aren't they getting to this point? And I think that's just the most frustrating lens to view the show from. Mm -hmm. But it's also the lens I think most people are like trained to watch TV with. Yeah, exactly. It, and it feels it feels so opposite of like the Marvel shows um mm-hmm. where so much of the what they're doing is like uh setting you up for surprises of like oh, it's going to be Kang the Conqueror at the end and stuff right. like that. And in Rings of Power, something I find so funny but kind of charming about the show is how obvious all the reveals were. Right. Like I I mean if I didn't have friends who knew about it like i wouldn't know who sauron and gandalf are because like i just don't even think about them but like everything i looked up like when i um watched the first episode and wanted to look up the name of the sauron actor i like googled the character name and the first thing that came up was like an article that was like is this guy sauron and Mm -hmm. um like same with gandalf like all the youtube recaps of like the first episode that i watched today were like so this guy's gandalf and right sort of just like especially in this age of franchise tv shows that's so weird that it was also obvious but like kind kind of charming yeah it's i think it works better that it was obvious and it almost makes the times they're like kind of jerking around or faking you out like they were so half-hearted <laughs> like yeah. um there's the brief moment in the last episode where the disciples think the evil sauron disciples think gandalf is sauron and it works from a character moment, but you don't buy it for a second. Mm-hmm. And I think also just hiding that Galadriel's friend was Sauron for so long. It's like, 
the reveal works only from a character perspective. From a story perspective, it's kind of nonsense. <laughs> yeah. And that's just, and that is kind of where the show is the weakest. Yeah. I feel like that scene, it almost makes you sympathize with Hall Brand more because, like, he keeps being mm-hmm. like, I kept mentioning how evil I am to Galadriel. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, that is true. He did, like, mention a lot that he was evil to her. Yeah. I'm I'm really interested with that character, the Sauron, well, the Sauron character, um, how season two will sort of like recontextualize him. Is he just going to be, I'm evil for the sake of evil and all of season one was just me, you know, having fun? Or is there like a more sympathetic angle where he like, there was some truth to what he was saying of, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be who I really am, which is the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I Yeah, I'm really curious how that shakes out. Um, because it's, I think hiding his identity for so long means he's just such an opaque character at the end of the day. Mm. And yeah, it's, yeah, I just really, I think that's sort of another sort of problem with the season. It's only eight episodes. They barely got the story going and it's going to be like 2024, at least until we see season two. It's just, uh, there's just a lot we don't know about it yet. It could really shake out one way or the other. Yeah, that is something super frustrating about it is that it's eight episodes and 22 main cast members, mm-hmm. um, which I guess is like close to Game of Thrones season one numbers. Um, mm. But the, I think that storytelling on Game of Thrones was a bit easier because um, it's sort of so character personality and dialogue heavy. Uh, whereas these like, big epic journeys are like harder to do in a small amount of time. Right. And I think at the end of eight episodes, I see where all those 22 characters are going to go. Especially now that I have the cheat sheet of the page and a half telling me what the next four seasons are going to be. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like so many of them like seem super like the sister of Isildur is like what is she oh my doing God, here yeah. <laughs> and it takes until the eighth episode to realize oh you need her to be friends with the grand vizier who is going <laughs> to be doing some overthrowing stuff and she needs to get to the palantir to have the vision of how things are going to go down and then it starts to make sense of why she's even in this show but like game of thrones is such a good job of like these are Cersei and Jamie Lannister. They're in Winterfell for this reason, and this is your viewpoint into how what they are like. Let's not introduce the characters in King's Landing until the until this character we start with, the Starks, get to King's Landing. Like it was mm-hmm. so deliberate about introducing characters with a function rather than Rings of Power, introducing twenty characters over twenty ep- <laughs> over three episodes, and then being like, "Ah, oh, can't wait to find out why this person's relevant." Yeah, exactly. Like the the scenes in. Game of Thrones are just interesting as scenes and yeah it's exactly what you're saying so much of it was just being like okay I'll I'll wait and see where they're going with this character it's like mm-hmm. a yeah a very specific uh kind of TV that like people used to be able to like not get away with <laughs> and um it yeah it's so mm-hmm. it's it's really interesting to me that the like $50 million an episode show that Amazon would hang everything on is this like very slow, difficult to get into tense series. Yeah, it's like 
they just gave the showrunners a little too much freedom almost. Mm -hmm. They really needed, and I don't want to get into too much discourse about them. I don't know them. I don't know their lives. Uh, they don't have any big credits before this, which is probably explains a lot, but I know they have mm -hmm. a lot of uncredited work on a lot of things. It's just, I don't know. They, you, you can read all the articles about how they like, they like got the show because they had this incredible pitch and they beat out all these other networks and all these other show possible showrunners. Um, and it does sound like when you listen to interviews with them, that they did have a good pitch, that they have a good handle on this material, a passion for it. They have a good idea where it's all going. But you, the inexperience just really shines through in this first season because it's just not on a standard, on a conventional level, it's just not that compelling TV. The yeah. reasons it's compelling are these totally weird angles <laughs> that are fully dependent on you kind of buying into it from the start. Right. It's uh, it's just such an inversion of like the way you would expect TV development to go where like so much of it is based right. on being able to write a good pilot and maybe like not even knowing what comes after that. But people mm -hmm. are like, OK, you like wrote one good pilot. You can probably keep making these characters interesting. Um, but it does almost like make yeah. sense with what Lord of the Rings is because I mean, the show is totally in line with what I've always found odd about Lord of the Rings, that they are these, like, unbelievably long, to me, meandering movies mm -hmm. that, like, everyone at my middle school was obsessed with. And I was like, that's, like, insane. This does not seem like a natural extension of everyone being into, like, Shrek. Um, right. But that's, that's the power of Lord of the Rings. They really make a... People walking through forests feel addictive to, like, a, a lot of people. I mean, the great thing that Tolkien did, that Peter Jackson picks up on, that I think is a big problem that show didn't follow through, is you have Frodo, is the main character of Lord of the Rings. He is the central character. And sort of like we're talking about the Game of Thrones, every character is filtered through Frodo, and eventually when you meet, like, Aragorn, Legos, and Gimli, they do their own thing, their own subplots in movies two and three. But only after they've met our central character and everything branches off from him. Rings of Power has at least three or four different threads where things then branch off of. Like the Harfoots have like no contact with anyone else in this story. Um, like Galadriel does meet Elrond briefly, but Elrond the dwarf stuff is so disconnected from everything coming with like Galadriel and Sauron and the Numenor people. It's just, they're so discrete silos that even if on the surface it's like, well, this is like how Frodo and Sam did one thing, Aragorn and Legos and Gimli did another thing, Pip, Mary and Pippa did a third thing, like, there's so much more connection between Lord of the Rings threads than there are with the Rings of Power threads. Yeah, I totally agree. And they're not, a lot of them are just not um, characters that suck you in immediately. Like, right. I love Nori. I would have watched a whole show powered by her. Um, but so many of them, like, Arondir, um, like, that just felt like dead weight every time. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, but I, the guy who's I, like, he's like, sorry. Is this, uh, I look up the names as well. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. who is that again? He's like in love with the human healer right. and yeah. Right. And that eventually intersects with uh, our other characters, but it's like going about the wrong way around where it's like him and Bronwyn, I have looked that up as well, the human yeah. mother who he's in love with. Like 
they will like like they eventually meet Galadriel and the pit people from Numenor, but that happens like at the end of the season, not the beginning where it should. And it's just, yeah, yeah it's like, I mean, it, the whole show is almost built backwards because we know, and like this is the thing people ding it with. It's like, well, we saw the end in the first five minutes of Fellowship of the Ring, mm-hmm. and God, it's. I, I I don't want to use the term Surf Dracula because that's so insular, but it describes a lot of things. Both frustrating yeah. but the person's also exactly right with this, where it's like I don't know, the point isn't getting to that end point of the person's fellowship of the ring. It's like about the journey you take along the way. That's the case with the books and the movies as well. So that criticism frustrates me a bit. At the same time, this really does get sweet time getting there. So from a plotting perspective, it's just kind of hard to get invested. Yeah, I think this is, like, a problem that is extremely common where, like, with both books and TV, um, I'll, like, get to the end and be like, oh, okay, that's why all the stuff earlier was interesting, but, like, the writer forgot that, like, I don't know that it's interesting yet when I'm at that beginning. Um, And, like, I think that is very common, but it's really extreme in this example. Yeah. Right. Um... I just want to assure listeners, if, in case the term Surf Dracula is not coming up on this podcast oh, before, yeah, just go Google Surf Dracula tweet. That you'll find out. But yeah, basically a show taking one season what it should do in a pilot. Um, yeah, and it's... I They have the latitude almost to do that because we know the end point, but it's almost like... You're right. They're they're like hamstrung by that. They like It's almost too much confidence as well to just... Mm-hmm. Well, people have bought into this already, so we don't need to guide them as if this is a new thing but it kind of is a new thing yeah yeah and that's just like something so frustrating especially just like knowing that they're getting 50 million dollar episodes is you're like Mm. couldn't you know just like make the scenes like better and more compelling it just it's like so much bloat and even though um like this is far from my least favorite show i actually find it pretty charming it does in that way like represent a lot of i think like the worst trends in tv yeah i mean oh this is very much favorite show. this is like not one of my favorites of the year but it's at least like of the shows i've watched this year upper half even upper third Mm -hmm. i of course i'm a nerd i've tracked ranked every show i've seen (laughs) this year i think it is something like 20 out of 50 or something like that it's like pretty high up there for me um and it's just because what works about it works so well that it's it really cuts through a lot of what is bad about it but it's hard to discuss because you kind of gotta get fixated (laughs) on what's tangible is what's bad about it and then what's good about it is oh that scene was really nice how the actor (laughs) acted was really sweet oh this has so much like importance in the history that makes me nerd out a bit like it's just all these little moments are nailed so well. And it's just hard to sort of describe them without going over each one. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly uh, the vibe. It like almost turns me into like a Ted Lasso fan of just being like, it's so nice. Mm. There's such a niceness to it. Right. <laughs> um, so getting into specifics a little bit, um, mm-hmm. let's talk about some of the characters who are, directly from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Uh, I'd actually assumed uh, that it was like a totally original show that just takes place in this uh, universe, Mm. which I think 
would actually work really well if they ever wanted to do that. Um, But it's not. There's uh, a lot of Lord of the Rings characters in here, notably uh, Galadriel and Elrond would be like the biggest. Um, Right. So you haven't gone in with knowledge of Lord of the Rings. How did you feel about, uh, we'll start with those two. Yeah, I mean, Galadriel, I think, works really well. I love Morfid Clark in the role. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a very different vibe that Kate Blanchett is bringing, I think, to the show's credit. And I mean, that's the idea, is even though this, I mean, that's the whole great thing about using elves, these characters who live forever, is that they have these... Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I love that about it, that it can take place literally thousands of years previous and have the same characters. Yeah, and you both can get how, oh, this is a younger, relatively speaking, Galadriel. Yeah. <laughs> So she's going to be, like, a little angrier and, like, different things have happened in her life. And this is, like, the story of how she chills out to be, like, the cool Kate Blanchett <laughs> character. Yeah. And, but there's enough in common that it really fits. Like, mm-hmm. mainly, like, I mean, not to be shallow, but Morfid Clark, a beautiful person like Kate Blanchett. <laughs> but and that's still the whole point of the characters. She's so beautiful, all these people would follow her in the battle or follow her into her little wood commune. And it's not, it's more than just, like, physical beauty but it's just like how she holds herself the way she can command people through like charisma and presence that's a that's a very difficult thing to nail and i really think they got it right and Mm -hmm. even though she's in like the worst story out of the four or five in my opinion a lot of it is sort of buoyed by her like having this presence and you're kind of like sort of wondering what she's going to do next being like sort of the most engaging character within that story Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Her and her and Nori, I thought, were like the two who really mm-hmm. sucked me in right away. Yeah, um, maybe it's best to talk about it like silo, like talking about each story individually and the characters we meet in those settings. I yeah, do you want to ta- uh, keep talking about sort of Galadriel's uh, story? Yeah, so I think she's really good and. That, I guess, will bring us to Sauron, another of the main yeah, characters yeah. who's going to show up in Lord of the Rings. Well, who technically does not show up in Lord of the Rings, except just kind of, like, passively observes everything. It is interesting that we're at, this is kind of his first, like, on-screen appearance as, like, an acted character and not, like, a sort of vague evil force that's, like, <laughs> psychically guiding people. Yeah, it's funny. There was... Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, there was, like, a joke tweet a while back that was, like who's your favorite sympathetic villain? And Sauron was on there and all the, you know, replies were like, this is obviously a joke because Sauron's on there. But like me mostly knowing Rings of Power, I was like, yeah, he's pretty sympathetic. (laughs) Right. And that's why, like, I don't know. I feel like I'm so up in the air on that character again until season two because Mm -hmm. it's just, does, is he just going to be, was all season one a joke to him or was he sincere? And I think it is a problem that they don't really answer that. (laughs) He is... We don't know. Maybe I need to rewatch when he was monologuing to Gladriel, but I can't remember picking up one way or the other if he was like sincere about like wanting to be friends with her and wanting to find some like a new direction with his life, which would be really interesting. Or he's just like was just sort of jerking her around for the sake of it and just trying to like get the lay of the land as it is right now. And he's just going to be like a full tilt evil guy, which could also be really fun. I'm not saying it was like a wrong answer. I just think it's just hard to read that character right as it is right now. 
but I do think uh, Charlie Vickers' performance is, for what it is, really good. I really thought he had a great presence. Yeah, I really love this character. I think I was probably predisposed to like him the best because that actor has like the most sci-fi original series face I've uh, ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm like, this to me is television. And yeah, I mean, I think he's a lot of fun, uh, you know, as a, just a sexy bad boy when, mm. uh, when he's telling Galadriel, uh, I'll make two crowns for us and we'll rule together. I was like, that would work on me. I think he's making good points. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I think uh, may, it could be less fun in season two, but I think they they're off to a good start with sort of this uh, the, the like meme I saw was like I'm done being evil. I want to be loved. Never mind evil again, which basically <laughs> is his whole deal at the end. And I, I I think that's a lot of fun. Yeah, I and like obviously it's gonna be a big thing going forward. Um, and he's going to, like, reintersect with Galadriel. And he's going to reintersect with a lot of these Numenor characters that he's already met. And so it's interesting. Yeah, it is. It fits in with the canon because the idea spelled out in some of these, like, like the Second Age, as it's the one that's sort of least talked about in Tolkien's sort of histories. It is an appendice to the book The Silmarillion and an appendice to the book Lord of the Rings. And neither, like, not a main book for either, which makes it great ground to just sort of do what you want. Yeah. What we do know is Sauron first appeared as a quote-unquote friend, and people did not know it was him at first. And then he basically, I guess we should spoiler alert for what's <laughs> probably going to happen in the future seasons. Um, the vizier guy is going to sort of get in league with Sauron. They're going to sort of do evil things, and it's going to lead to the, the flooding of the city is... But that whole vision is obviously something that's going to come to pass mm. because that guy gets in bed with Sauron and it's going to lead to the ring, the one ring being forged and Sauron getting overthrown. Um, the queen who we meet is sort of a deposed by that vizier guy who and Sauron. So I, I'm, I'm really curious what's going to happen to her. I don't think it's mentioned whether like she's killed as part of that process or survives. But regardless, I think Sauron sort of coming in as sort of like playing the politics game is going to be a very interesting thing going forward. Mm -hmm. um, did you have more you wanted to say about the Galadriel plotline? I mean, I think of her and Sauron as being sort of the big part of it. Um, right. And a lot of it is mostly just meeting these Numenor characters who won't become relevant until later. The queen <laughs> is cool. I like her and... Um, Sildur's dad, uh, whose name I can't remember either, like, uh, oh yes, Ilendil, there we go. I don't want to get the names right, uh, so you'll know who we're talking about, but yeah, like, they're interesting characters, and they serve a story function in that they, like, help liberate the town at the end of the season, which we'll get into, but most of it is stuff like, like I already mentioned, Isildur's sister, she's, like, kind of just extra stuff until a bunch of stuff happens to her at the end. And we still don't fully know what she's going to be involved with, but at least she's now connected to characters who will do things. Um, yeah. Isildur himself is just kind of a whiny brat who shows up from time to time. And yeah. like, again, if you look up, look him up, he's going to be a central character in overthrowing Sauron. But right now he's not doing much. So yeah, it's a lot of like setting seeds for seasons two, three, four, and five. And 
that means those scenes, like I said, it's kind of the worst story, especially outside those two, Galadriel and Sauron, because it's almost all set up for the future. Yeah, I agree. Um, Isildur is super hot. He's crazy beautiful. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, most of that stuff is is pretty, pretty boring. I, um, I still would say that the Arendor... Arendir plot is even more boring. Mm. Um, but yeah, like, those I mean, are both yeah. pretty setup heavy. For, yeah, Ryan, for Ryan, the Arendir plot is like also, like, it's two weak plots and two very strong ones. And yeah, yeah I, th- I think it's a pretty clear dividing line. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, though, the one thing the Numenor stuff is the best is you get so deep in the, into like the Tolkien love of like horses and such. It's all over the place. <laughs> it's great. There's like a great slow-mo shot of Galadriel, excuse me, of Galadriel riding a horse through a meadow. That serves no other purpose other than to be a slow-mo <laughs> shot of Galadriel riding a horse through a meadow to be like, well, this is what Tolkien would have wanted. This is so important to his ghost. Yeah, it does also have, I think, probably the most stuff that feels like it doesn't belong, like with the the sort of power-hungry advisor who's like... right oh, if we go to war for her, then they'll owe us and that'll be good for, like, trade. I sort of, that to me was sort of, like, jarring and too Game of Thronesy because I was, like, I don't know. It's weird to see people, like, playing politics in a world where it seems like everything is controlled by, like, magic. Yeah. It's, like, again, it's the stuff the showrunners seem the least interested in, which is weird because it's, like, the stuff yeah. that's most cleanly spelled out of what's going to happen. I mean, that's why they're the least interested in it. <laughs> but... um yeah it's yeah it's a very um yeah it it is just like i'm going to need to see season two before i fully write it off but it is just very uh it's the hardest stuff to get into it's the stuff where the complaints make the most sense to me um and then i think because they intersect with it most and it's, I want to get through the bad stuff before getting the good stuff. I guess we should talk about, like, Arendir <laughs> yeah. and Bronwyn and all that. Yeah. Yeah, that was truly the stuff that, like, on my first watch, mm. I just could not pay attention to. And then mm-hmm. um, on my second watch, I, like, got a little bit of it more. But it's still, yeah. it was, like, pulling teeth to pay attention to those people. <laughs> I think it's, like, almost the opposite problem the Numenor stuff, where it's, like, the most basic and straightforward that there's, like, nothing there. Like, whereas the Numenor stuff is, like, all mm-hmm. complicated, future setup, intrigue. This is just, there's a guy. He loves a woman. Their town is under attack by orcs. And what makes me like it a little better is that we get cool elf action through Arendir. Like, it, they're very much trying to do Legolas mm-hmm. on a budget. And I think they, the cool scenes they get are cool. It's, it's good enough for me. Um, but yeah, I really like the scene where he's like imprisoned in the camp and like does a bunch of like fights the wolf, kills a bunch of orcs, runs up the tree. That's all really fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I think like where the weakness comes in is it is like so it's so dependent on sort of this romantic plot, right. but there's not actually it just like doesn't feel that romantic. There's not mm-hmm. enough like sexual tension um and it's it just feels like it's so this romance is so important to the story, but I just kept being like, I wanna more of like the dwarf marriage. They really yeah. have something there. There's like so many couples with better chemistry. The dwarf marriage, Galadriel yeah. and Sauron, Elrond and the dwarf. 
Um, there's just, yeah, it's, there, it's a, the classic problem of, we have a whole plot line hinging on this romance and the actors just don't have enough chemistry. And that is frustrating. Mm -hmm. Oh, and the son is also super annoying. There's moments like when, when he survives that like huge, um, you know, when there's all the red smoke and stuff, it's just so weird mm-hmm. that it's like, okay, Galadriel, surpri- Galadriel survived because she's like this amazing elf warrior. And then this kid is like, oh, I'm also fine. Yeah. Yeah, I especially because they're setting him up like he has like this evil sword or whatever. And it's like, you think it's going to corrupt him or something? Or like, he's... I don't know, but he just kind of like loses it or gives it away and then he's fine. It's there's not much of an arc to him. He just kind of hangs around and asks annoying questions. And it, it's just so weird what they're setting up with that kid because I just can't figure it out. But it, it like feels like there's the sense of them setting up something with him and there's like nothing. Like even the Asildur sister, I feel like I have a more concrete idea where she's going than this kid and why she's here than this kid. Yeah, it's this show really shows like the two extremes of like when plots with kids work, they can work so well. And then when they don't, it's Mm. just the worst because I like hate that kid so much. And then like when Nori and Poppy are on screen, I'm like, I would die for you. I would I would do anything for these kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's that's pretty much how it goes with almost every kid on screen. (laughs) It's either you get it really (laughs) right or really wrong. Um, Yeah, it's. Yeah, I guess there's not really much more to talk about with that story. Oh, the the fake Sauron is a pretty fun guy. Like he's yeah. well, Sauron's off being like complicated. He's like the kind of pure evil for the sake of evil. That's like kind of fun to see in one of these shows. Yeah, he he definitely pops. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested to see because he's like so like he acts so angry when someone else calls him Sauron. I'm interested to see how he's going to react when Sauron himself is now stomping around his ground. <laughs> yeah. Like, taking command. That's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And the battle for the village is, I think... Like, it's a Lord of the Rings battle on a TV budget, which is weird because it's had a movie budget, but <laughs> besides the point, it, it still was a pretty good action scene. Like, I had a lot of fun with that. So, even if those are like the two shakiest storylines. They came together to do a pretty good episode there. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of the plot with Elrond and Durin, which is, I'm realizing is kind of the only plot that has what I associate with like Lord of the Rings, which is just like dudes broing out and just being yeah. best friends. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess that, really is credit to the rest of the show for like having gender diversity in a lot of <laughs> whereas I mean Tolkien's writings just of a certain age didn't and but yeah this, but, like, yeah but yeah yeah the, my, uh, my friend was saying she's like it's like disappointing that it's not super gay but I guess since that is because there's like actually female characters around <laughs> I can't complain yeah um so yeah I mean the Elrond Durin stuff is, I think, my favorite storyline. It kind of has the weakest conclusion with the rings. The forging of the the first three rings are very anticlimactic, but mostly because they spend the whole episode being, so what are we going to forge? Is it some kind of scepter or a sword? It like they almost... Keep dancing... Yeah. Like, it almost feels like an SNL sketch, 
with right. just sort of like trying to draw out something that just like doesn't work in this medium of just being like, oh, will it be two crowns? No, it it should be circular, but smaller than crowns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, mean, I guess just to get the best out of the way first, like the whole conflict of we're running out of life force and they've discovered this thing, what mithril, which is basically like bulletproof vests in even in the books, like there's not much magical property to it. I think that's invented mm. for the show that it can like restore this like elf ambiguous life force. Um, it's just not very well explained. I think because they're trying to like build the reveal of the rings, which is stupid because it's in the name of the show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a little more concrete, even though like Tolkien magic is part of the wonder is that it's very sort of ill-defined and vibes based, but a little more concrete explanation of these sort of things would have helped. But the characters in the story are so good. I love Elrond yeah. and Dorin. I think their friendship is great. And Dorin's marriage to, I want to get her name right, Disa is fantastic. They're Durin's so good, his, yeah. yeah. his relationship with his dad is, like, very well thought through and very, like, emotionally moving. And just this dwarf city itself is just so visually spectacular. Yeah, and like I that, think the, uh, the sort of initial conflict where... Elrond thinks they're friends and Doran is mad at him, I think is like such a fun and smart thing that you can do in this world where like in Elrond's mind, it's like they've gone a few weeks without hanging out and Doran is like, right. no, you missed a lifetime. Like I've been, I got yeah. married and I've been raising my children. It's like a great newish take on like this kind of world and this kind of material, like dealing with like immortals like that. Like, obviously not a brand new idea, but just, especially in Lord of the Rings world, you haven't really seen something like that before because it's been so focused on just sort of like this one end of history moment. So to have that, yeah, the Elrond and Durin friendship is just so fascinating and seeing them rebuild that friendship is so good. I think Durin himself gets like a lot of the best dramatic material between the scenes with Elrond and scenes with his dad. And I, my, maybe my favorite part in the whole show is when he like negotiates for the table, like yes. lying about some historical significance, <laughs> and admits he just wanted a table. It's <laughs> it's really good stuff. Yeah, that stuff is a lot of fun. Um, what did you think about Elrond specifically in terms of like capturing how you thought of him from the book and the movies? I didn't mind it, but I think it is like the most different. Because, mm. yeah, it's he's so far from Hugo Weaving's performance. The actor also just looks way too modern. <laughs> like, it's like the old Twitter joke. His face knows what a podcast lo is. Yeah. Like, he... <laughs> I think especially with the short hair, whereas, like, the Hugo Weaving Elrond and most of the other elves, like, the long hair is usually the look for them. The short hair just makes... Just makes them feel quite right. But, yeah, I don't... I, I see how he connects to the future Elrond, far less than how Galadriel connects to the future Galadriel. Mm. But I don't mind as much because the character, I think, still works very well. And I think it's a good performance. Like, it won me over for sure by the end of the season. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about uh, the Harfoots? Yeah. I, I said the Dorn is Lot's favorite, but this this is this is my action, <laughs> my favorite right now I think about it. This is like, those two stories are so much better than the rest of the show. They're so good and are everything I think works well about it. 
even in even in the storylines that don't work so well, what works the best in these or what works well in the other ones. I hope I'm making sense. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah, the Harfus stuff is almost entirely like character based, emotion based, nature based, just exploring the world rather than moving a story forward. It just is all so great. Yeah, and it's such a just sweet, nice story. Mm-hmm. Um, like this story is just so much about you know, being kind to strangers and how you can choose to be good in comparison to like, right. I think the Galadriel storyline kind of suffers from, and maybe this is like canon accurate, but to me, like a lot of the time I'm like, wait, does she think like orcs are inherently evil and wants to genocide them? Like there was a lot of like stuff mm. I bumped up against in that one. Whereas yeah. like the, the Nori stuff is just so sweet and nice. Yeah. I mean, just the tangent back a bit, that is just kind of how Tolkien is writing it in the 50s. It's like, well, the orcs are like, I mean, this might not have been intentional on this part, but like the orcs are like Nazis, so they're evil. So don't forget about it. Oh, okay. Let's kill them all. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like a lot of post-war. Well, I, I guess it would be Nazis for him. It would have been um, the Great War, but still. Uh, yeah, it's just like, it's a very, a guy who served in the war mindset when it comes to the orcs. <laughs> right. So there's no, they're just totally covered by darkness. There's no saving them. It's best just to like get rid of them. And so I do wonder if the show will like address that at any point, because it is like a not a not a very modern way of thinking about people, <laughs> about right. in the world. But yeah, so that is I can see how that would bump. But then the the Harford stuff does feel like almost in contrast, like more modern because it is about like kindness and reaching out to people, and it's these like very nice like modern but like elemental at the same time because that's such like a nice timeless theme about like encountering the unknown and being kind to it uh, i like like the way i thought about the whole time was like gandalf is basically like et which is <laughs> i think a very funny take to have on him yeah yeah um yeah they also just like look great their clothes, their hair, the homes. I think like that is probably just like aesthetically my favorite part of the show in addition to just yeah. like thematically and character wise. Yeah, that is some of the best design stuff. Like I, I will say this show, I I called the big battle a TV budget battle, but I think <laughs> the production design, like design like the cities and stuff is like, that's where the money is on the screen. I think there's a lot of gorgeous like, costumes and props and settings and just all of that works really well and does such a good job just immersing me in it i think we're even like house of the dragon the sort of obvious comparison point like felt a little lower rent than like some of the big beautiful like sets and stuff in here Mm -hmm. yeah they yeah they definitely created a world in a way you don't usually see on tv and i'm like not Mm -hmm really a fan of tv shows having budgets i think like tv should always look like degrassi um but on the other hand i am always like oh it is great when they have great clothes and hair that that is Mm. yeah i mean i'm fully on that side i this has also been a better show if it was lower budget because then there'd be like less pressure more episodes Mm. (laughs) less weight between things and all that but if that's what they're going for at least the at least it's not like a netflix thing where it's like you don't, they spend up $200 million and it looks like it was still shot in the backyard, but yeah. also it's like structured like a Netflix thing. Mm. It's like worst of both worlds is how a lot of these things tend to turn out. And at least when this has the money, this actually looks great because of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what else to sort of say about yeah. the Harfoot uh, plot line. Um, but yeah, it's just mostly just like how it makes you feel and sort right. of the the aesthetics of it. The Obviously, it's when it, they have the great song that Poppy sings, um, mm. which I, is on Spotify, and I have been listening to it a lot. Oh, um, same. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it just is a, is a plot line with, with great vibes. Yeah. Uh, we haven't talked about actors in a while. Lenny Henry is so good as a Harfoot leader. Like he, like all the Harfoot actors I think are really good. I love Poppy and Nori's actors as well, mm-hmm. but Lenny Henry's like a veteran of this sort of thing. And he's just really bringing the gravitas where he needs to. And so, yeah, I think it is just like, it's just fun hanging out with them. It's just nice how they get to use the Gandalf. And I think... Like, the basically two scenes of Gandalf being sane and sort of in control that we get at the end, again, very much a sort of delayed gratification thing to hold him off for that long. But when you get him, uh, I just want to look at the actor's name because he is so good, uh, Daniel Wayman just gets the vibe entirely right. Like, it was just two lines, basically. He... You fully understand the character. He is like channeling Ian McKellen in a way where, like Morphin Clark and Kate Blanchett, he's drawing com- enough comparisons so it feels right, but you're n- he's not treading on the performance. And because if he did do that, he would look probably not as good in comparison because Ian McKellen's mm-hmm. a fantastic actor and like so embodied that role. But instead, he has this new take on it that's different enough, and I guess the sort of the younger vibe of the character. It works. It totally works. I was like really taken aback. I had tears in my eyes when he was doing this last line. I was like, oh, this is so familiar and such a great new take on it at the same time. Like they nailed it in one. It's going to be mm-hmm. so good when he actually has a full season to play that character. Yeah, it's really nice how much the the actors in this um, that are playing established characters are like very much like not doing impressions. Like everyone yes. is doing their own thing. Um and I think the Gandalf reveal works a lot better than the Sauron reveal just because the Sauron thing is like inherently a mystery of people always being like, oh, where is he? Who, you know, who's going to turn out to be Sauron? Um, right. But whereas like the, this didn't have really the element of a mystery with like a disappointingly obvious ending, you could just watch how, you know, him being Gandalf unfolds. Right. Like, I mean, they see so many clues early on if you, like, know the history. But also it's just, like, even the fake-out works as a character moment. So it's all based in character. So it's still a good story. Even if Rings of Power only existed and nothing else did, I think the Gandalf mystery, quote-unquote, just works as a story so well. Mm-hmm. that Yeah. It, it, yeah. It feels more like an emotional thing where, um, mm-hmm. wh- like... As opposed to, like, just a fake-out, it feels like this sort of thing where he could have been evil and then Nori, like, reminds him that he's good. So it's it has such a, like, emotional pull. Right. It's... And, and then, like, you, like you've been saying, Nori herself is just such a dynamic character. Yeah. Like, she's, the, she's easily the best lead of any of these storylines. Mm-hmm. And that just... She just works so well because you're just, like... She holds the screen so well. She has a lot going on, and her storyline is probably the most compelling because it is so grounded and so low-key and 
setting up the least, I think, is the big keyword there. I don't know. I guess this just has me like this discussion not having me really excited for season two again. That season mm-hmm. won't get again for like two years. Yeah. It's, a, it's it's a frustrating show, but at the same time, the things I just love the things that work about it so much. I am still so excited to see it again. I'm I'm really rooting like when I read these interviews with the showrunners, I'm like really rooting for them, even though the kind of like uh these guys who are I mean, even just like being friends with JJ Abrams is almost like a punchline in and of itself. It's like <laughs> oh, they just sort of bummed on Hollywood and like found like with no experience they got to this play point, which is like the the hit on them. I don't know how true that is again. But God the, what they understand about the material is so on point that I don't know. I just can't help but root for them. It's, they seem like nice people in interview who seem like they figured out what worked and what didn't, and hopefully will be turning in not just good Lord of the Rings vibes in future seasons, but a good season of television on its own terms as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like I don't blame them. It's like the right. The, the development process, I just feel like, you know, someone should step in and be like, you know, everything you're doing is great, but, like, here's how, like, episodic television should work and, like, push them yeah. more towards, like, you know, making episodes of television. Yeah, I I think you're right. It's, like, an, it's an editorial problem, not in the film sense of an editor, but in, like, you know, like editor of like a magazine or a website or whatever. It's like mm-hmm. oversight is the real issue here. And hopefully if they're not going to get that, at least the internet can yell at them to figure <laughs> out, like they can read the reaction, the tea leaves and see what sort of, and it, and it did feel like the show was getting better at constructing episodes and figuring out what the characters do and having more compelling scenes than not. Towards, as the show went on. It definitely mm-hmm. feels like the beginning is where it was the slowest and more, most confusing, and then it picked up. So hopefully that's a good sign. Yeah, now that sort of all the characters have, for the most part, intersected at the end, it probably won't have uh, a lot of the same problems that the first half of the season did. So yeah, if we're all in overall thoughts, overall... I like this show in spite of itself, and I'm really excited for more. <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt. Like, it really kind of did sneak up on me, like, in my my second watch that I did for this podcast, being like, I really do like a lot of this. Yeah. yeah. It's just so tricky with, like, a franchise like this to, quote, unquote, get it right. Like, with so much writing on it, and so much expectation, and, like... I don't know, just like compared to like the seven different Star Wars projects or whatever, (laughs) where, and some of those I really like, but to capture what works about that, about any one of these like totemic sort of big franchise foundations is so hard, especially when it's been built on and like, there's been less like trial and error with Lord of the Rings as there has been with Star Wars, for example. Mm -hmm. So like Andor knows not to do what Obi-Wan did or something like that. Whereas with Lord of the Rings, this is the only, pretty much the only thing besides what, like, there's, like, little adaptations, like, internationally and animated stuff, whatever. Peter Jackson's kind of the one big thing that most people know. So I think Rings of Power, trying to build on that, it's tough. 
And that what they get right is, I think, the hardest thing to get right. And what they get wrong is, I think, the things that's most easily fixable. So that's, I think, what gives me a lot of, that's um, what presses me a lot and gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, there. I feel like there's a, a sort of like pressure with this franchise that I don't think mm-hmm. is very good for television. That like, right. I think kind of the best way to make television is on like a CW or a sci-fi show where you can, you know, try different stuff. And mm-hmm. like, at some point people will start being like, hey, this show got really good. And like Rings of Power is just coming from a place where it's like, it, all that exists of this franchise are these Academy Award winning movies that are considered to be like some of the greatest films of all time. And it's like mm-hmm. a very weird, uh, a, a weird place to like try to build a TV show from. <laughs> right. I mean, the pressure is a whole franchise is riding on this because like nothing's been really done since those movies. A whole studio is riding on this in terms of Amazon. <laughs> and also the show itself is kind of riding on every episode because there's so few. So there's a lot of pressure with each episode just kind of deliver some goods. And I think with all the expectation, it turns out all right. I, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't embarrass itself, I think, is like kind of impressive in its own right. Yeah. Um, do you want to move towards uh, wrapping up? I. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so let's, uh, let's rate it. Um, okay. okay, so I, for this, only read um, the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to go just, like, on my own enjoyment, unfortunately, I'd have to give this, like, a two out of five stars. Mm. Um, it's just, I guess, not for me. I, like, found the vibe of it charming, but then it got like so tedious um, mm-hmm. story-wise. Um, yeah, so for me personally, I would give the the book two stars. Um, do you want to rate, you can either do just Fellowship of the Ring to make it comparable to mine or rate all the books you've read in the series, whatever you want to do. I mean, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. I, I think all three Lord of the Rings books and the whole se- thing as a whole is like a mass a five-star masterpiece i had such a great time reading it i loved it it is for me and that, i mean it's fine that's not for you but it was for me and i'm really glad i discovered it yeah and then for rings of power i you, like yeah like rewatching it again after reading the book i was like shamefully i think i enjoy this more than the book i don't know what that means about my brain um but yeah i, I kind of kept going back and forth between like two and a half or three stars because it definitely has problems, but I think I'm gonna be generous and give it three stars because I just overall was pretty was pretty charmed by the show. Yeah, I was just looking at um, serialized my favorite little <laughs> letterbox for TV just to refresh myself, and yeah, I gave it four stars and I stand by that. I think it's nice. for all the issues. I I just love what it does right so well. And that, and like, what it does well is, again, so unique and not many other shows are doing that, which I guess giving Tolkien vibes is something that would be hard for another show to do. But, right. <laughs> yeah, I think that sort of justifies itself in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Uh, so I like to end on a recommendation. Mm. Um, 
or I do it is, uh, so since I like the show better, I'm going to recommend a book for fans of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to recommend, sorry, let me look up the author name. The Last Wish uh, by Andres Sapkowski, uh, which is uh, the Witcher book. And I feel like if you're like me and the Lord of the Rings books weren't necessarily like exciting enough for you, uh, mm-hmm. that's a, a fantasy book with like a lot of action. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're really fun. And then, um, so since you liked the... Uh, Books better if you want to recommend a TV show for fans of the books other than Rings of Power. Hmm. For fans of the show, like Lord of the Rings fans. Uh, yeah, TV show you think people who liked the books would like. Right. Yeah, I, I a lot of recent TV shows that I'm just trying to sort of now calling my brain like like the bear or interview with a vampire wouldn't be quite the right vibe so it's like what is something i watched that's like a sort of the ringsy vibe i'm going to go with uh an animated show that has recently ended well it's ending there's going to be two more wrap-up specials but i really loved it it was called it's called the owl house the first two mm-hmm. seasons are on disney plus i mean if all ages isn't really your vibe. I guess it's not for you. But if you <laughs> liked, I don't know, Over the Garden Wall, Gravity Falls, that sort of Adventure Time, that sort of thing, The Owl House, especially Gravity Falls, it shares a lot of uh, creative personnel in common with that show. And it's about this uh, human teenager who gets transported to like a magical realm, very standard stuff, but the magical realm is very Hieronymus Bosch inspired, very demonic in nature. And there's a lot of great visual gags that are like a little like in that same sort of Gravity Falls vein in Adventure Time, it said like a little horrifying, but also kind of cute and funny. Um, she gets she meets a witch called uh, voiced by Wendy Malick, who is dealing with her curse on her own. She's sort of like an outcast of this sort of witch society. Uh, together, this girl, Luce, learns about magic, meets friends, learns to eventually overthrow an emperor, you know, the sort of standard fantasy stuff. It's very cute. It's very charming. I like it a lot. I think it has great world building, fantastic characters. Uh, it's notable for being like a Disney thing that is actually queer and not just <laughs> an exclusive gay moment or whatever. The character is openly bi and has a romance with another female character that is out in the open. And that's probably why Disney were like, oh, we're ending this after two seasons and three wrap-up specials. So <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of a contentious way the show is wrapping up, but uh, that second season ended earlier this year, and it was really good. They aired the first of the three hour-long specials that are going to conclude the rest of the storylines, and that was uh, the first one was also really good. So, yeah, if you like fantasy, especially one that's like not very grim, dark, but more about like a world and its characters and sort of hanging out there, I think Owl House is a good recommendation. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I really want to watch that. Yeah, uh... I think yeah, yeah. First two seasons on Disney Plus, and I guess the specials will follow when they all air. All right, do you want to do your plugs? Yeah. As mentioned, I have a podcast, Talking Trek to You, at Talk Trek to You on Twitter, where most podcasts are available. I have have not seen any Star Trek pre the J.J. Abrams movie, or at least I have, but it's very scattered. And so I'm watching all like the original series episodes for the first time with my co-host who has seen them dozens of times. And it's very fun. And I'll have you on the podcast eventually, Lenny. I'm sorry so many people signed <laughs> up before you did. No problem. 
Um, all right. And uh, you can subscribe to the Patreon to get chapter surfing episodes earlier. You can follow me on Twitter at Lenny Burnham. And you oh. can look up my other podcast, House of House, where we rewatch episodes of House. And I'm also on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. Please follow me there if you want to. All right. Thank you for being here, Kev. And thanks for listening, everybody.